0: Namaste,
1: motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Bridge Over Troubled Water, and today's theme is Pirates. Walt Disney said there is more treasure in books than in all the pirates loot on Treasure Island. And here are a few bits of pirate trivia. Pirates didn't actually wear eye patches because of a missing eye, but rather because they were keeping one eye ready to see in the dark when they had to adjust quickly below deck. That's all a bit less swashbuckling than you might hope, and there is no historical evidence for any pirate having ever owned a pet parrot. And only one pirate, William Kidd, is known to have ever buried any treasure. Lordy, next we'll be hearing that Captain Hook didn't actually exist.
0: It's a a building we moved into a couple years well a year and a half ago.
1: That's today's guest, Johnny Walker. When pirate John Lafitte saw that the governor of Louisiana had offered $500 for his successful capture, he put up flyers offering $1,500 for the capture of the Louisiana governor. The word buccaneer comes from the word buccan which is a wooden frame used to cook meat over a fire and this buccan was popular with early pirates in the Caribbean leading to the word buccaneer and talking of pirates and the Caribbean the most expensive film ever to have been made is the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie.
0: I've I've heard of your your days running a bar in Gillingham at the age of 16.
1: Hold on a minute how do you know about this? You've done better research. Me.
0: Johnny Walker made his name in the 1960s with
1: pirate station Radio Caroline before moving to BBC Radio 1 in 1969. After a clash with his BBC boss about the Bay City Rollers he moved to San Francisco in 1976. He talks in his autobiography about how whilst there he struggled financially at times to the point where he even had to resort to sleeping with his then five-year-old son in his car. He was back again at Radio 1 by the early 80s, followed by a stint presenting Drive Time on Radio 2 until 2006. In 2003, he began treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and went on to be given the all-clear. Nearly two decades later, in 2019, it was announced he had a heart condition from which he is also, thankfully, fully recovered. Nowadays, he presents Sounds of the 70s on Sunday afternoons on BBC Radio 2, as well as hosting The Rock Show. Oh, by the way, I do just want to mention, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, we recorded this uh, a couple of days after I'd had surgery, and I just want to mention it, I'm fine now, by the way, but the general anaesthetic had taken its toll a bit, so um, you probably won't notice, but I was a bit more dopey than normal, even than normal you might be thinking um, and I do mention it in our conversation so let's just get that out of the way Um, anyway back to today Johnny and I talked about pirate radio dreams cars music the BBC seasickness soulmates being stoned being fired rehab romance illness health and finding your voice But I started by asking him about his Dorset home, which is where he was talking to me from.
0: We're surrounded by farms and we've got a little garden there. The other side of the fence is usually cows grazing, so it's very rural.
1: So that's quite a shift if you think about your life. Did you ever think you'd end up sitting in a rural converted barn behaving yourself?
0: (laughs) Uh, No, I didn't. (laughs) But it's worked out very well. It's future-proof because there's no stairs.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about I mean, I'm 53. So a little way to go before I need to worry about stairs. But um, the house I live in in London has got many stairs. And it never occurred to me when I bought it in my early 30s that that would ever be a thing. And now I'm like, why did I put my bedroom on the very top floor of this house?
0: Well, there you go. You've got a long time before you have to worry about that.
1: <laughs> That's true. My dad is, uh, is 79 and my mum's in her 80s. They live down in Gillingham and um, even they still have stairs, but a bit. Later. they're both, I might say, more than up for the job of getting up and down them. And did That's you, because um, it, it, do you broadcast now from there or do you still make the schlep up and down to London?
0: I do a live show about once a month from London. And the rest of the time I've got a little den down the end of the corridor And I record the show there. And it's kind of weird because I just record what we call the links, the talking bit between the records. So I'm introducing and talking about records I don't actually hear. And then I send the audio file of my links to the producer and then they put the records in and build it that way. So it's kind of a weird thing to do, but I've got used to it.
1: And I guess you know. I mean, all the music that you're playing, it, you, you're hearing it in your head when you're doing the links, so it's uh, it's not as if you're talking about tracks that you don't know. Or though, I suppose no. actually, on your book show, there are. Are you pre-recording that as well?
0: Yeah, I do that the same way.
1: So that has got new stuff on it, right? So there will be tracks on that that you that you aren't familiar with.
0: Yeah, but I do. I what's called top and tail. In other words, I listen to the beginning of the track, maybe all of the track, and certainly the end of it. But what happens when I do the 70s one, I try and, from my memory, recall how a song ends. But sometimes when I hear the show on the radio, I think I come in very loud at the end of a record and it's got a very quiet ending and um, it doesn't sound quite right. It's much better to do it live. Yeah, for sure. And
1: that's the buzz, isn't it? Doing it live. So it must be very different... I mean, it's lovely to know your voices there and the BBC love you enough because I don't think they're probably letting many people do it this way around. So they're obviously dying to have your voice on air. But the kick of when you think about your Radio Caroline days in the beginning and moving to sort of recording in a Dorset um, alcove, that's quite, that's quite a move.
0: <laughs> well, the wonderful thing about the pirate years was that you learned all about radio because you're on a ship, starting with the generator, providing the electricity. That powered the studios and then also the transmitters. And then the signal went up to very tall mast uh, to the aerial and sort of beamed it out. Um, and actually, having a transmitter on water sends the signal at a much further distance. So we would go into Holland and Belgium and Germany and France, uh, as well as coming into the UK. But you were there with the whole process. From being in the studio to the transmitter to the antenna, everything—it was a great way to learn about radio.
1: Is it like the Richard Curtis film? Is it like Pirate Radio, or was that not a realistic <laughs> depiction of what life was actually like?
0: That was not a realistic depiction at all. <laughs> uh, we weren't. There was a, a rule that you weren't allowed to have any women on board. Uh, We had Dutch food cooked by a couple of Dutch cooks who were also always rowing and throwing pots and pans at each other. Uh, And the captain was very strict. The captain was the boss. So it was absolutely the total opposite as that portrayed in uh, Rock the Boat.
1: It's kind of, I always thought, I mean, I I wasn't, not that I want to make you feel old. I wasn't alive in those days, but my birth name is Caroline. So I was always fascinated by Radio Caroline. I was born shortly after it was shut down. But In terms of the idea of being stuck on a kind of boat broadcasting, it's almost like an early version of a reality show because I can't imagine that that was the easiest life when you were, I presume the easiest, nicest bit was when you were on air.
0: Yeah, and the thing is we would do one week doing our own show. Mine was 9 to midnight. And then the second week, we would sit in for somebody who'd gone on leave. So then the second week, I'd do 9 to 12 in the morning and then 9 to 12 at night. So a lot of your time was spent on the radio. And all the time you were broadcasting and the signal was going out, everything was great. And at nighttime, you could see the lights and the shore. There was Clacton not very far away. That was very brightly lit. Uh, But the worst time was when we went off the air. if We had a technical fault and the ship was not broadcasting, you could feel the difference in the energy. And then it just became like you're sitting on a rusty old hulk in the North Sea going round the anchor. Um, And then it was pretty awful. But all the time you're on air, the energy was just fantastic.
1: And was it in terms of you getting into broadcasting because you'd you'd been a car salesman and then had to toss up between that and DJing right how did how did that sort of early bit of your career go
0: well um the actual transition kind of will answer your question that I believe might be coming at the end a sort of significant moment in life which was a little similar to your Joan Rivers moment uh I was doing two things I was a car salesman during the week and then at weekends, I was going to a racing driver school in Norfolk, training and learning how to become a racing driver, which I had big ambitions for. Uh, and then I was also DJing in clubs and pubs and ballrooms around Birmingham. And that was definitely affected my daytime job. I was half asleep when I got to work, I was sometimes late. And eventually the manager of the garage said to me, One man cannot serve two masters. I will give you two weeks to decide whether you're going to be a proper car salesman or you're gonna continue with this disc jockey nonsense. And I said, well, I don't need two weeks, thanks very much. Um, I'll give you the answer now, I'll be a disc jockey, thanks. And he said, you're crazy, you're throwing away a great career in the motor trade. In 15 years time, you could be a manager, which meant nothing to me at the age of 21. And there was all this fantastic music going on. The BBC weren't playing it, so Ronan O'Reilly decided the only way to do this is to be outside international waters, and start a radio station on a ship, which everybody thought he was mad. But um, it worked out really well. And they were great times. I wouldn't trade them for anything.
1: And what was it like in terms of, so having the resources to be doing that behind the scenes, so living the life that you were, and then finding your voice as quite a young man kind of on the airwaves. Did you d- did things transition quite quickly at that point in terms of you knowing what it was you wanted to say and how it was you wanted to be? Because I'm always quite in awe of people who were out there getting their voice heard when they were young. It's taken me a long time to be confident enough in what I might want to say, to wish for a bigger audience to hear it. How was that Good. for you?
0: There were strange things that happened because after answering that ultimatum, I then said, do you want me to work a week's notice? He said, no, you can go now. Give me the keys to your car. And my parents went ballistic. Uh, and my dad said, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm not going to hitchhike around the world or I'm going to be a pirate radio DJ. And I had to persuade him to lend me his car that Saturday evening to go and do a DJ gig. And during the evening, someone came up to me and said, had I seen the article in the Daily Mirror about a new pirate station called Radio England? And I said, yeah, it sounds really good. He said, you should apply for a job. And I said, well, from the article, it would seem they're all going to be American DJs. No, he said, they're going to want a few Brits. Uh, You should apply for a job. So I did. I rang the mirror on Monday, found out where the advance party was, which is the Hilton Hotel, uh, rung them up, and they said, send us a tape. So I made a tape up and then instead of posting it, I thought, well, I'm doing nothing. I'll take my tape to them. So I got on a train to London and went to the Hilton, went to suite 1017, knocked on the door and said, here I am. I spoke to you yesterday. I'm here with my tape. And they said, well, where have you come from? I said, Birmingham. How far is that? They said, I said, a thousand miles (laughs) <laughs> they'd only just they just arrived. They hadn't got a clue. So I think my sort of—in uh, my my sort of—I've uh, uh, forgotten the word—but um, having the courage to go down there, having the courage first to walk out of my job, and then having the wherewithal to go down there and present the tape in person, I think helped swing it. So I was out of work for one day. And by Tuesday afternoon, I was a pirate radio DJ. And you know, the strange thing is, no one ever throughout my life who's ever contacted me, uh, run me up or met me outside the beep, the person who said I was the one who suggested that you should go and get a job on a pirate ship. And you would think they would, they completely changed my life, but they've never ever got in touch, which leads me to think, the only thing it could have been is it was an angel who went in and made that suggestion because he was right. They did want a few British DJs along with the American ones. And to get around to answering your question, the nice thing was they wanted DJs with no experience that they could mold into their way of broadcasting. And the top DJ, Ronnie Quinn said, Johnny, never use plurals. Never say ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Don't remind your listeners that they're one of thousands or millions. Just talk to one person. Just say, hello, how are you? And that was a lesson that really stuck with me and that I've sort of followed ever since. And if I get letters from people saying, I really feel that you're doing the show just for me, I think, yeah, um, that's exactly what I want them to think.
1: That's such interesting advice. I know I do stuff with Colin Murray sometimes and I know he talks about that is that you're addressing one person and having that conversation. And I know with what I do in stand up, if you actually will have a live conversation with the audience, that's when you have a zinger. And if you're just doing sort of pre scripted stuff, they kind of pick up on it. But when you go from, I love the fact you had that courage of your conviction as a young man and somehow had the wherewithal to just know with the bit between your teeth this is what I'm doing but it's one thing to go down there and tenaciously with an element of bullshit about geography get the job but then how did you feel when you got the job and actually had to start doing it Were you did you at any point think I really don't know what I'm doing I'm going to be found out
0: <laughs> uh, I was incredibly nervous obviously I want to ask you about your first night of stand-up <laughs>
1: Well, I was shit. um, That's a quick story. I thought I'd be great. (laughs) I was shit and I persevered anyway. So there you go.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's the only way you can learn, really, is by doing it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And that's really what happened on the radio. The thing was, though, after having got the job, there was then quite a few months while the ship was being prepared because it wasn't quite ready. And uh, when we got out to the ship, uh, they'd ignored all the advice of somebody who knew about pirate Radio, who'd been on Radio Caroline, The most important thing was hang huge tractor tires on chains all the length of the side of the ship. So when the tender boat that brings you to and from the shore would come out, they could come up against the ship without any damage. Well, they didn't do that. So the seas were very rough. The tender boat, uh, the captain of the tender uh, was very frightened of getting too close to the ship because it was bashing great tents in his ship, his boat. And we had to leap. And it was quite high up. So we had to time the crest of the wave and then leap across this gap, knowing if we sort of fell down between the two ships, we'd be definitely, we'd be a goner. And then they took us down and showed us the studio. And then they showed us the living accommodation, which was an empty hold with sleeping bags on the floor. So it was really, really tough on that first ship. I only stayed there a few months. And then I went to Radio Caroline, which is very different.
1: What was different about Radio Caroline? Because I guess that's the fame—that's the one that, well, certainly people my age will think about. So what was the difference?
0: Well, on the way from Texas, where they put this ship together, to the North Sea, they stopped at various ports because the aerial fell down and they had all sorts of problems. And then they hired all sorts of uh, crew, none of whom spoke any English. The ship never seemed to accept the fact we're running a 24-hour radio station here. So I was doing midnight to six, a six-hour shift uh, all night, and then a three-hour news shift on two radio stations in the morning. And there was nobody up during the night, and the distance from the studio to where the mess room was to go and get some food, a bit of toast or something like that, it was too far for me to get there and back during a space of one record. So I was incredibly hungry. If I wanted to have any food, I had to wake up during the day when I should have been sleeping. Uh, Whereas on Radio Caroline, the whole thing was used to a 24-hour radio station. There was always crew around. You could come out the studio, and the mess room was right there. We had a big cupboard full. We lived on cornflakes and toast. And uh, (laughs) it was a much more comfortable ship. And it was, it was very small. It used to roll and, and about in the storms, but um, it was a gorgeous ship. She had a heart, a real, she had so much soul, that ship. She was fantastic.
1: Did you ever get, um, I MC quite a bit on the Tatchesaw Castle on the Thames, which is no Radio Caroline, but it is a very good comedy club. And I, I, when I'm on there for three or four hours, by the end, I feel quite sick. I'm guessing uh, you didn't have a sort of sea sickness problem or pirate radio might not have been for you. Uh,
0: Stuart Henry famously started his career with Radio Scotland and he was sick the entire time. So they allowed him to record his programmes on shore. Um, I wasn't ship I wasn't, sorry I wasn't sick on the actual Caroline ship, but on the journey to and from the ship, you could get seriously ill. It was about an hour and a half, and often the seas were very rough. And, and uh, that became worse after August '67, when we couldn't be serviced from England. we had to have a ship to Holland. So going across the North Sea in a force10 gale uh, all night long. Being sick the entire time was not an experience I would like to go through again.
1: And then having to be absolute... perky on air, not being able to say, I feel sick as a dog. and yeah. um, don't really want to be here.
0: You just wanted to die. I used to pray for a sky hook, Just hang this boat on a hook for half an hour, <laughs> halfway through to give us a break. But yeah, no, sometimes you did. You got back on the ship and you'd have to go straight on air, feeling like death warmed up.
1: At least people couldn't um, see you. At least it wasn't like nowadays where they're actually... Do you do much where people nowadays when you're broadcasting, where they insist, um, I guess not if you're pre-recording links, but where they insist on having a feed and where the visuals are there as well?
0: Radio and and vision seem to be mixed now. Radio 2 have refurbished their studios and fitted a load of cameras in there. And the idea, they they can constantly record what's going on in the studio and then do some video clips for, for Twitter and the like. Uh, I don't really like that. I think radio should be radio.
1: It's funny, isn't it? Because you do it. It is a very different form. And I always think occasionally when I guest on radio and then they say, oh, you know, we we'll just take some pictures. I'm like, oh, Christ, I'm in my pajamas. No one said no one said I was going to have to do this. Is there um one of the things that a lot of comedians talk about? And you ask me, you know, why I'm in this hotel room in Stratford-upon-Avon there's a lot of, it's actually very solitary. So people feel that we're really communicating with them, which we are, but you're going from a standing start with no one sort of whipping you up and there's no sort of team going, well, this is how it's going to be. I know, I know you have producers and so on, but having to go from naught to 60 and then suddenly be the voice that your listeners want to hear, Do you, does it feel like a kind of solitary experience to you or do, or do you feel that connection with the people you're... You're broadcasting too.
0: Well, uh, what you're talking about is doing shows and travelling. And that is that can be a very solitary experience because there you are in a theatre, you do your show, they want to do the meet and greet afterwards, which is like another show of meeting people in the foyer and they want to take selfies and have autographs and all that sort of thing. So you, you're surrounded by people uh, giving off loads of energy and then you get back to your hotel and you're completely on your own. So that is a very solitary experience. But in doing radio on the pirate ships, the lovely thing about it was there was no producers, there was no executives, there was no managers, there was nobody telling what to do. We had complete individual responsibility as to how we did the show and, and what we said. And uh, by and large, um, occasionally you get memos from Caroline House that they'd be annoyed with something you'd said, but um, by and large, we sort of, we knew what we had to do and we sort of stuck to it. We, it was lovely having, being awarded that freedom to be able to do radio uh, and and to do it well and try and keep within the borders what's acceptable and what isn't.
1: And do you think you've ever had that feeling again? Was that quite unique, kind of bossless and determining your own parameters?
0: It was unique, and so... All the pirates that came on shore and went to the beginnings of Radio 1, Mike Hearn, who is a Liverpool DJ on Radio Caroline, he got fired after about five hours, Mm -hmm. I think, because he was given a producer and the producer started telling him what to do and Mike just couldn't deal with it and they just parted company. Yeah, I mean, when I first joined the BBC, there's a producer there with a clipboard and a stopwatch uh, and completely inhibits your freedom to connect with an audience. And also you knew they had a thing in Broadcasting House called the Ring Main, which went all around every office. So every office could tune in to every BBC uh, station. And you knew there was people listening all the way through the BBC, um, which put tremendous pressure on you. Uh, and you were being told what to do by well-meaning middle-aged producers who lived in Croydon or Bromley who really didn't know anything about the music that we were playing. And that became very frustrating.
1: And is I think that's definitely still the case. And I know we don't want to um, slag off the hand that feeds you, but these are my words, not yours. But having worked, I've only very briefly worked with and for the BBC when I used to work for UK TV, which is which um, is jointly owned by the BBC and, and now other people from then. And I used to do various bits and pieces over there on the telly side. And I just, I, it just didn't suit me. And when I was at MTV, I nearly worked for Trevor Dam. Um, they were setting up a sort of music TV element of the BBC. And I was really interested in the idea, but compared to the culture at MTV, I just thought there's no way I will cope with this. And it was actually the sort of HR process of trying to hire me. I thought, if this is what it's like, count me out. I, I can't be asked. And I can imagine the disparity between the voice you have and the presence you are and that kind of organisation. I know you I know you have been fired by them in the past, or at least parted company, and then come back. But is that attention that exists, is it one you're willing to talk about, given they're paying your, for your nice barn in Dorset?
0: Well, I mean, things are very different now. Radio 2 is very different to the beginnings of Radio 1. I mean, these people are producing Gardener's World and light entertainment programs. I mean, it's hard for you to imagine and the younger people to imagine what the radio scene was like in those early days. Um, before Pirate Radio came along and forced the BBC to change, you just had Radio 4, which is called the Home Service, Radio 3 Classical, and the Light program, which was a mix of straight middle-aged music, uh, game shows, Mrs. Dale's Diary, um, it was, just, it was just a complete mishmash of stuff. So these people suddenly were supposed to be trendy producers on a trendy radio station. Uh, BBC, uh, all of the press was saying, auntie raises her hemline and goes trendy. And of course, <laughs> uh, it didn't really work that well in, in, in the beginning. And, you know, still the BBC's, the, the, the big drive at the moment is to attract younger listeners and viewers. And my view has always been young people never listen to the BBC. They'd much rather do something else. And now, of course, you've got music streaming services you can listen to. People start getting, you know, using the BBC when they get a bit older. And it's ever been that way.
1: I think it's, um, Arthur Smith has a brilliant line that I've seen him do on stage where he does some material about Radio 4 and he says, and it's always younger audiences at live comedy, and he says, you know, um, I don't know if anyone here listens to Radio 4 and then there's always a ghostly silence. And he says, don't worry, you will. And I think that's, <laughs> that sums up the sort of transition <laughs> into radio. And I've certainly got massively into the audio form as I've got older. I always have the radio on now and I, I, I never really used to. Namaste, i also think there's a kind of misnomer in well first of all there's a big gap between broadcasting executives and the people who actually front the shows and then the audiences and what they want to hear and i and i it was ever thus and i see it so often in the tv world and the gap between the actual creatives and that connection and then people who are signing off on things and making decisions from behind a desk but i also think there's a there's a slight misunderstanding sometimes about the difference between the demographics who are listening or watching and who might be presenting. And I think sometimes executives seem to think, well, people listeners want someone who's just exactly like them. And I don't think that's the case. I think listeners want someone they can relate to, but they don't need to be the same age as them or like them. What, What do you think?
0: Well, the big change is when I started in pirate radio, Um, radio, certainly in America and with pirate radio, it was all about people who were skilled at doing radio. And it was just an audio medium and that was it. But over the years now, um, the only way to get a radio show is to be on TV and become a TV celebrity Mm -hmm. and then they might give you a radio show. So because you're someone on TV doesn't mean to say you're gonna be good on radio. And so the, it, it's not so much they hire people who are like their listeners, who can connect with them. They hire celebrities. And, of course, the big change in afternoon radio that's just happened is the ending of the Steve Wright show. Mm-hmm. And I can understand a radio station thinking, Would they use this word, refresh. <laughs> we're going to refresh the afternoon, Steve. And he said, we're going to make some changes. That's what he was told. And then uh, about a week later, he said, well, what are are these changes? Normally, management doesn't get involved in what goes into a show. What are these changes? Well, actually, we're going to change the presenter, Steve. So he's very philosophical about it. He said, I had a really good run. And radio stations, obviously, they can't really have their presenters getting older and older and older. They're trying to attract listeners who are younger. So difficult decisions do have to be made. But uh, I really miss Steve Wright in the afternoon. He did a fantastic show.
1: I used to listen to Steve Wright when I I went to Salisbury College and I would drive from Salisbury College back to uh, Shaftesbury. So was, you know, 40 minute drive each way every day. And he was the soundtrack to my journey home every afternoon and I've on Radio 1 and I've always taken great comfort from hearing the show still on Radio 2. So I was really, really sad. When that ended, it made me feel very nostalgic. Um, and I think sometimes these changes are made for change's sake. And it's not necessarily what listeners want to want to hear. But you're somehow weathering the storms of... Well, I do want to go back to the being fired. So you've. Um, when I thought about themes of things that were relevant in your life, um, illness came up and surviving illness and getting fired. So you parted company with uh, Radio 1 back in the early, the first time that you, it, it was a Bay City Rollers controversy that, uh, that you got in the middle of then.
0: Yeah, that was 1976 and I'd done, uh, I started with the BBC in 69 and I did uh, bits and pieces for a while. And then they gave me a daily show Monday to Friday for one hour following Tony Blackburn at nine o'clock and preceding Jimmy Young at 10. I think they were just wanted to try me out see if I was okay doing what they called, for some reason, they called them strip shows, shows that ran Monday to Friday. Um, and then I used to play album tracks on my show because a lot of really good music was coming out on albums that didn't necessarily be released as a single. And Derek Chimery, the boss, said to me in 1976, he said, well, your contract's coming up. We want you to do another two years on the lunchtime show but no more album tracks. So I said, what you mean is more Bass City Rollers? If they're in the charts, yes. I said, well, how about a show at the weekend for a while where I've got musical freedom? Don't be so ridiculous, he said. Nobody gives up a Monday to Friday show for a show at the weekend. He said, two weeks on the lunchtime show, now no, uh, no album tracks or nothing. So I said, well, it better be nothing then. So I wasn't fired, it was my decision to leave. And I went off to America and worked in San Francisco for a while.
1: And what was it like then? The because um, that must have been quite an interesting time. I know you're, you've been no stranger to partying over the years. Is that fair to say? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you could say that.
1: So I imagine, um, I obviously didn't go to San Francisco in those years, but I have spent quite a bit of time uh, there and um, on the West Coast since. So what what was that like as a youngish man who just uh, decided to part company with quite a traditional employer in the UK, finding yourself over there?
0: Well, before I got my steady job with the station in San Francisco, I visited radio stations in Los Angeles. And there was a DJ there called Tom O'Hare. And I went round to his uh, apartment in the afternoon. He said, I'd love you to do a guest slot on uh, KLOS. No, KMET it was, KMET Los Angeles. And he said, but you've got to go on Stoned. He said, rolling another spliff and having another Jack Daniels. And I said, "Um, I mean, there's two ways you can go when you smoke a spliff. You can either start laughing and become very outrageous or you can become a bit um uh a bit inward really a bit introvert uh and I said no I really don't want to go on stone tom uh, I said does everybody go on st- stoned on the radio in LA he said yeah find me somebody who doesn't so you couldn't have been more different to the BBC and I think he thought we'll get this guy stoned he's come from the BBC with all that strictness uh and this should be really interesting to see what happens So um, I was going through a very kind of spiritual time uh, back then, and I remember I went on. and I did the show okay, and then I decided to read an excerpt from Kyle Gibran's The Prophet, uh, which I did. (laughs) And I I was stoned, and it was very difficult to do stoned. And then I came walking out of the studio, and there's kind of dead silence (laughs) around the rest of the radio station. So um, that blew that one but um, then I worked on a station called uh, KSAN in San Francisco, uh, and that was a really great station. So it was coming from a very strict conformist BBC to radio where most of the jocks did get stoned. There was a wonderful guy called Richard Gossett who used to drink beers, and alcohol is banned in radio studios in America. He used to drink beers and roll joints all the way through his show, which was evening, six to 10. And it didn't really matter because I think his audience were getting stoned with him. And then sometimes, the great thing about K-Stan, was complete musical freedom. You had in the studio a huge wall of shelving full of albums just outside the studio, the main music library, hundreds and hundreds of albums. And he would sit there and he'd put a record on, he'd be rolling a joint, and then he'd suddenly think of the next song that he wanted to play. So he'd run to the wall of the albums, trying to find the album that he wanted, uh, finally get it, pull it out. Meantime, the track on the air was just coming to an end and he knew he didn't have time to queue up his next record. So he used to sit there and sort of shrug and say, oh, well, there you go. So the track would end, there'd be about a three or four second gap and then the next track would come on. So um, it was very relaxed radio and it was enormous fun to do.
1: What was your life like off, affair at that time then. So things must have been very different uh, when you'd been you know, living in the UK and working for the BBC. What was it like actually living in San Francisco at that time?
0: Well, I worked on a station which was in the downtown area. Uh, and then my first uh, place I lived was in Berkeley, in, uh, on the other side of the Bay Bridge, this enormous bridge that takes you about 10 minutes to drive across it because I discovered it was very hard to get an apartment in San Francisco, and I had two children. So I lived in Berkeley, which was kind of very laid back and very Californian and very sort of Joni Mitchell. Um, And then I moved back into the city and got an apartment in uh, what they call the Mission District of San Francisco, which is where most of these sort of Mexican uh, people live. So um, that's a very lively part of town. I remember a policeman saying to me once, when you cross Market Street going into the mission area, he said, lock your car doors, which I never did. I never had a moment's problem living in a mission district. It was just really lively. Uh, and Friday night, the main street was taken over by the low ride. The cars would go slowly up and down the street. They used to have to divert the buses. Uh, and that was fantastic. The girls would be walking along what I should call a sidewalk, and the guys are driving these cars with sort of chromium-plated chains for a steering wheel, blasting out music, and every so often they'd stop, and then they'd press buttons, and the car would sort of jump up and down. They had the most enormous batteries in there and hydraulics and things, the low riders. Uh, So that was very colourful. Sounds like a cross between West Side
1: Story and Greece.
0: (laughs) Something like that. (laughs)
1: and you were married so you because you're you're um the lovely tiggy who you are now married to and and listeners know because she makes appearances on your show and you had the um the lovely podcast con. con- conscious I can't even speak I better be careful how I say that consciously coupling uh nearly said something else um which which obviously started from the point of you two having found each other um on your case third time uh third time lucky but you'd got so you married quite young so when you were living a fairly sort of renegade life you were married with kids
0: uh yes I was um and uh, unfortunately, that first marriage that produced the producer, two children broke up in San Francisco. And I decided we had a long talk about it. And I said, well, we're a bit in an equal situation in a way. I said, I can't afford to support you and the two children. I wasn't earning very much. I'd, I'd been fired from k by this time. And I was doing the odd DJ gigs in punk clubs and things. Um, so I said... If we split all the money I've got, which I think was about $12,000, and I said, I'll take Sam and you look after Beth, which is what we did. And it seems people get very surprised when I tell them that, but it seemed the fairest and natural thing to do. So there was I going off to do DJ gigs in the evening. Sometimes I could find, I shared the flat with about four other people. Sometimes people would be staying in and they'd look after Sam. Other times, everybody was going out, so I'd have to take Sam with me. And I remember I used to do gigs in a place called the Geary Temple. Um, and The Clash played there and uh, all sorts of people. And I'd be up in the sort of balcony over the stage with my DJ playing records between the bands. And then underneath on the floor in a sleeping bag, there would be Sam sleeping. And then I'd finished about one, o- one o'clock in the morning. And then I'd have to make sure I got him to school for eight o'clock um and that was that was quite difficult that was
1: i bet you got loads of attention on the school run now i think blokes always get a lot of attention (laughs) when they're on the school run and back then come on that must have been you must have been no problem trying to recruit for wife number two
0: uh no it wasn't like (laughs) it was it wasn't like that at all really um and there was no there was no wife number two uh until much much later and that that Marriage unfortunately only lasted about six months. Wife number three. Yes, so much more. Wife number three (laughs) is a good bet.
1: I can vouch for that. And is it it, what so what that must have been joking as I was about it, but being a single dad of a boy, especially then, I mean, they really weren't dads raising their children. So, how how was that the disparity between what you were doing by night and, and how your actual life was dadding Sam?
0: Um, well, I think my, my wife, Frances, thought it would be really bad for Sam, that he, he wouldn't be getting proper meals. Um, you know, there's me working at nighttime a great deal, uh, and she thought he would turn out very badly. But it, he's, I, I think he looked at my life and thought, right, that's what's not to do. I will do the opposite <laughs> of what he's done. So he lives in Sydney now. He's married with two children. And uh, he's, he's having a really good life. And um, there were times once we had a journey. Uh, I moved from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. And we were driving across the country. I was in an old 1960s Chevrolet estate car. And it was piled high with all my DJ gear records and, and my stuff in the back. And there was just room for Sam and I in the front bench seat. And I pulled off to a scenic area and parked the car, and we got out of the car and played frisbee with each other, and there was beautiful views around North Carolina, I think, and the wind was blowing, and we were playing frisbee, and I said, well, we'd better get back on the road now, Sam, and I got back in the car, and he sat there, and he just looked at me, he said, this has been the greatest day of my life, Dad, and it was such a simple thing we were doing, but he just loved it so much, so he was very good at dealing with adventure and change, and uh, I think it stood him in good stead, really.
1: What a lovely story! I feel like that's almost your namaste motherfucking moment, or certainly, certainly one of Sam's. Are you so? You're still close to Sam. Do you see him often? If he's over in Australia,
0: I don't, unfortunately. Tiggy also has; uh, she has a brother in Sydney, and she used to go before we met. Uh, regularly, at least every two years. And we kept that up for a while after we married. But um, somehow it at the the journey at my old age of 77, uh, it's not so much the going, it's the coming back mm-hmm. that seems to lock me for six. It's a long, long way. So we don't go quite as often as, as we'd like to. But we chat on FaceTime and um, we keep in touch as much as we can, but uh, I miss him a lot. The world is
1: small now, but it is still, my, my daughter ended up in lockdown. We were stuck in different countries and the lockdowns of our two countries kept not coinciding. And um, that was only, I think, eight months I didn't see her and it felt hellish. So I, I I feel your pain. Are you close? And your daughter is a bit closer to home.
0: Yeah, she's uh, down in Portland, in Dorset. Oh, beautiful. So, yeah. So it's a lot easier to go and see her or we meet halfway and have a lunch somewhere. And uh, she's doing fine.
1: And did you, we've mentioned Tiggy quite a bit. And uh, you met, when you met Tiggy, you'd been going through a bit of a, was that, a, well, tell me about meeting Tiggy and what that meant to you, meeting your, your third and final wife at, at the stage in your life when you met her.
0: Well, funny enough, I, I had a bit of a cocaine problem. And I went to. I wasn't going to mention
1: it, but it was all over the tabloids not long it before was. you met Tiggy. So I'm glad you went there before I was forced to. <laughs> uh,
0: anyway, to sort that out, I went to rehab and I came across Crossroads on Antigua. And it was started by Eric Clapton. And Eric Clapton had had a home on Antigua for a number of years, really loved the island. And uh, Antigua was a bit of a staging post for drugs. And there was tremendous drug problems on the island amongst the locals. So he decided he'd open up this rehab center. He called it Crossroads. He regularly still does, I think, have concerts where he raises money to run Crossroads. He sells his guitars to fund it. And the idea is people can come from uh, Europe and the USA. But for the local people on Antigua, it's absolutely free. And that's sort of his gift back to the island. So anyway, I come back from Antigua, uh, not drinking, no drugs, uh, and met Tiggy through an old friend. I was renewing my friendship with a fellow, songwriter called Gordon Haskell.
1: Who I know Um, a bit, actually, from my teenage years. He hung around with a lot of the musicians I knew in Dorset, so I know Gordon a bit.
0: (laughs) He was a character. She and uh, uh, Tiggy and, and Gordon were having a bit of a summer fling together. And the, I was told about Gordon when his manager brought the album in, his new album into Radio and he mentioned his girlfriend. And the moment he mentioned his girlfriend, all my psychic antennas started going off big time. I've learned to sort of recognize the intuitive feelings over the years. And I thought, I have to meet this person. I just, I want to renew my friendship with Gordon to do that. Nicking his woman is not the best way, but I have to meet this person. I knew I had to. So eventually I I did. And uh, we went to the Soho Club. It was her club in in Greek Street in Soho, the Union Club. And I went there with Gordon for a drink. And he said, Tiggy might join us later. And it seemed an absolute age before suddenly she was standing there, uh, full of laughter, full of energy. And it took... 30 seconds to completely fall in love with her. And the overriding thing I felt was, I know you. There's so many questions I don't have to ask you. I know who you are. And it was the same feeling for her. And it's given us both total faith in reincarnation because we must have been together before in some way for us to know each other so well. So um, there I was, this clean machine, very spiritual, I was the perfect man for Tiggs, kind of, this is what I've been looking for. My grandmother, who's just died, told me, you should go with an older man to you, would be much better for you. And then three months later, the older man turns up. Uh, and so she got me at my best. <laughs> and then gradually, sort of, I started to live a bit more normally and drink a bit of wine and stuff like that. And she said, you conned me. She said, you really conned me when we first met. Um, <laughs> But uh, that's just the way it was. She had this lovely cottage in Ashmore that we go to at the weekend. She'd done very well for herself. She worked very hard. She was very clever at being a a commercials producer. Uh, And she was brilliant at her job. She made lots of profit for the production company. And um, she'd done well for herself. She did a lot of uh, commercials for McDonald's. And she said, "Really, I often thought I should have McDonald's arches over my cottage <laughs> in Ashmore because they paid for it." Uh, and we go there at the weekend. And I've completely forgotten why I got into that story.
1: Well, you were talking about how you met her, and and that, by the way, if you could see me, we're doing this with our cameras off. You would see I had tears in my eyes at that story because you hear <laughs> about these things, but they're quite. It's quite rare. It's quite rare to speak to somebody who's had that experience when they met their person, and so you had this. Beautiful lyrical romance. Uh, and by the way, how was Gordon about you just stealing his girlfriend and saying, "Look, this is my soulmate. We've been together in a former life. She's mine."
0: Uh, I thought um, I must do the gentlemanly thing here. He did off immediately, and he became a bit of a gooseberry on that that evening. But he'd previously said to Tiggy, he said, I feel I'm going to be a catalyst for you to meet someone who's more the right person for you. And after about a week after Tiggy and I met, Gordon said to Tiggy, I don't think it's working out between us, is it? So Tiggy said, no, not really. Let's just put it down to a summer fling. And from that moment, I was free to, to be with Tiggy. And um, so Gordon was very good about it. Um, I did play his record, How Wonderful You Are, on the radio, not long after 9-11. And that was the other thing about meeting Tiggy. We were having long conversations that evening, the three of us, about how the West really need to rediscover its spiritual side and really realize what was important in life. And it was the simple things. uh, And it was love. And it was friendship. and It was being good to each other. And Tiggy said, something needs to happen to wake everybody up. And that was in the evening. And then the very next morning, planes went into the Twin Towers. So that was a very profound time to meet her. And uh, it was quite incredible, the whole thing. Anyway, Gordon had made this new album. And one of the songs was How Wonderful You Are. And I thought it was a very simple, healing song with just the message that coincided with what Tiggy was talking about. And I started playing it on my Radio 2 show. Michael Parkinson was listening in a taxi on the way to the BBC, phoned his producer and said, I want to play that record by Gordon Haskell. Radio 2 got behind it and he had a huge hit.
1: I remember he suddenly was right in the limelight.
0: Yeah. And he very nearly made number one. He was up against Robbie Williams and Nicole Kidman, I think it was, who did a duet. So he was a a number two Christmas hit. And he got a million pound publishing contract. He bought himself a new house. He bought his mum a house. Uh, And he was set fair. So um, the Evening Standard rung me up and asked me about me playing this, launching this hit song, How Wonderful You Are. Um, And uh, I said, I'm not sure what I should say. And Tiggy said, Well, just tell him. Seeing as you nicked his bird, it seemed the least you could do to play his new record. You beat
1: me to it. That's karma. (laughs) And you know what, if someone said million quid, you know, Christmas number two or a a girlfriend, I think most people would go with what Gordon had. So I think you were both winners in the end of that story. But the bit that uh, people will probably know is no sooner did you have that beautiful love story, got married. It was all the Hollywood movie stuff. And then you fucked it up by getting very ill.
0: Yeah, that was a a cruel twist of fate that Mm. was. And I think whatever relationship Tiggy and I had in a previous existence, I must have helped her to some degree because if there's karmic debts being repaid, my word is she helped me. And uh, we came back from a honeymoon in India and I was just, I was constantly tired on the honeymoon often I had to go to bed early, and she'd have to sit in this restaurant being serenaded by this Indian uh, guitarist and singer doing his version of Tequila Sunrise. She said, I never want to hear that song again. I ago. bet. So <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't the ideal honeymoon for her. And I came back and got myself checked out. And it was discovered I had a tumor in my bowel, which they thought was bowel cancer, and then it later transpired. It was uh, a cancer called non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I remember I went for this um, colonoscopy at this clinic in uh, Marylebone. I think he was at the nearby Waitrose shopping. And he said to me, I can't really get the camera as far as I need to. There's a tumor there and I'm pretty sure it's cancer. So I called Tiggy up and I said, um, I think you better come, come up to the clinic. So she was at checkout. So Tiggy says to her, well, What do I do with all this food? Uh, Do I just leave it there and run to the clinic? And she said, well, she thought to herself, well, whatever's happened, we're going to need to eat. So I'll finish the checkout, and then I'll go up and see what's happening with Johnny. I remember coming out the clinic, she was outside, and I just said to her, Tisa, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. I really thought, this is not what you deserve, you know, just a few months into our marriage but you're going to have to deal with this. Um, So that was a tough time. And uh, I was on very strong chemotherapy, which after a while, after my fourth chemo, uh, I remember I had three chemotherapies and they did a scan and the oncologist said, um, the scan's reduced in size, but I recommend you have the rest of them. And each chemotherapy session put me into Bart's hospital. Um, my body just found it very hard to deal with. And Tiggy said, don't give him any more, you'll kill him. And I said, well, just for once, I think I'd better follow their advice and do what I'm told. So chemo number four caused me such enormous uh, constipation. I was completely blocked up. And um, eventually, one morning, I was at her cottage in Ashmore, and I was crawling around the floor. I couldn't stand up, the pain was so bad. And I remember saying to Tiggy, I said, call the fucking ambulance, Tiggs. Uh, this is serious. Dial 999 now, now, now. Unfortunately, that was the time when ambulances. would come faster now, then than they do now. Um, so Tiggy relates the story. So I called the fucking ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> and off I went to the hospital about 10 in the morning. And it wasn't until 7 o'clock at night they'd worked out what to do with me. Uh, there's a man we call Superhero. He was a general surgeon called Nick Carty. And he said about four o'clock in the afternoon. Finally, they, they found a, wa- a bed for me in a ward. And he said, get this guy, get him to have a scan now. And for some reason, they didn't. I don't know whether they thought I was so weak and so ill. All my intestines had burst open. This is what happened. And uh, they didn't send me down. They thought it might finish me off. So he came by at seven o'clock. He said, has he had his scan yet? And they said, no. They said, get him down there now. Ring up the scan department. And the guy was just about to pack up and leave. Anyway, he restarted the machine. I had the scan. And then about 11 o'clock at night, I had had an emergency operation. So that was touch and go for a bit. I was in intensive care for a while. So I took it right to the edge. But uh, I managed to get through that.
1: Did you feel, do you remember thinking
0: this is it i'm not going to come back from this um you kind of deal with what's going on at the time Uh, i remember there was this lovely nurse very caring nurse and uh, i was holding her hand at times during the night and i was on a lot of morphine i think tiggy came in the next day to visit and the nurse was still there and i said i said "Uh, i'm going off to um a South Sea Island with a nurse. She's been wonderful. She's been holding my hand all <laughs> night. And <laughs> the nurse turned out to be a, a, a boy, a fella. So <laughs>
1: well, there's a plot twist in Johnny Walker's life.
0: <laughs> yeah, but he was lovely. He actually said, um, he said, I need, he, we were together, Tiggy and I, with this nurse and he said, I need to pop out and get something. Pop is the word you hear an awful lot in the NHS. I'm just going to pop this in your arm. I'm just going to pop. Anyway, so he just wanted to leave us to be together. And I remember I sidled onto the edge of this narrow bed that I was on. I had all these wires and tubes connected me and stuff. And I said, come on, Tiggs, get up here. And she climbed up on the bed. And uh, we had a hug and just held each other. It was the most intense feeling of closeness and love. I've never experienced it all my life. It was quite, quite incredible. And um, without that illness and that operation, I wouldn't have experienced that. It was amazing. And Tiggy was just fantastic. I'm not sure if I'd been on my own, if I could have um, got through it all, but um, she was amazing.
1: And you got a chance to repay that amazingness because it was 10 years later, wasn't it, that she got breast cancer.
0: Yeah. Equal opportunity marriage. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I feel it's very, very fair and equitable. And yes. she and she found that So she, she diagnosed herself with breast cancer. because this, And she's got a beautiful book, which she showed me when I met her unplanned journey. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes, which is an incredibly honest. Look at what happened. But she so she self-diagnosed herself with breast cancer.
0: Yeah, she went to the hospital and they found a lump and um, she went in and had a lumpectomy. And she called up Bella West, a photographer we know, and and she said, I really wish I'd taken a photograph of Johnny because he went down to eight stone and you would never have believed the person you see now was the person who was then. And I wish I'd taken photographs of it just to have a record of, of what happened. So she said, would you consider doing photographs of me? And Bella said, yeah, and then Bella came up with the idea, why don't we turn it into a book? So amazingly, Salisbury District Hospital gave Bella West permission to come in and photograph absolutely everything. She was in the operating room, taking pictures of the operation. Uh, She was there for the chemotherapy. A quite amazing record of, um, of Tiggy's journey through cancer treatment. And the book is wonderful. And Tiggy's a wonderful writer. And she really puts her personality into her writing, and the thing she wrote in that book, uh, you, her sense of humour just comes shining through. So I think it was good for her that I'd been through chemo, so I knew a bit about it. So um, so I could help her quite a lot. So I did repay the love she gave, love and support she gave me at that time.
1: And I guess you're not thinking of it that way around. As a younger woman marrying an older man, you think, well, there will be some arse wiping and stuff that comes into this. But I guess you weren't banking on that with your hot, beautiful, vivacious younger wife, that you were the one who would end up changing tubes and, and helping her. Because chemotherapy doesn't make people particularly nice and relaxed, does it?
0: No, it, does. it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't
1: bring out the best in anyone.
0: I love the way you use expressions like arse wiping. <laughs> Say what you really mean, (laughs) (laughs) Kelly.
1: Listen, I took a long time breaking out of my corporate shackles so I could say (laughs) what I mean. And did you, um, if there's, you talked about that moment where you hugged Tiggy when you'd sort of just come back from the brink of wondering whether you'd make it. And was there a moment with Tiggy's illness where you knew it was going to be okay?
0: There was a lot of tender moments. I remember when I got cancer and I went in the shower one day and a lump of hair fell out. As soon as I got dressed, I went straight into town, into Sharsby, went to the barbers and said, give us a number two, shave it all off. Uh, Because that sensation of big clumps of hair coming out is quite a profound experience. Mm -hmm. It really is. And I said to Tiggs, and I bought a, a razor in advance, and I said to Tiggs, if your hair starts to fall out, I said, I'll shave it off for you. I said, just be bald. And in um, fact, advice from her brother, um, Graham in Sydney, who's a hairdresser. And you know the way hairdressers and their clients talk. So he was very experienced in, in women having cancer. And he said, own your own baldness, don't wear wigs, just be bald. Anyway, the moment I sort of shaved Tiggy's head, uh, that was a very profound moment. And she looked beautiful. And I said, forget Sinead O'Connor. The shape of your head is absolutely beautiful. And she did. She was so beautiful with no hair. Um, but, of course, it's, all, it's grown back now. So um, she got through it okay.
1: And then you threw another curveball because you two seemed to tag team uh, traumatic illness. Then you had a heart problem, heart condition in 2019?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'd I'd already had a couple of stents and then I was out walking our dog Darcy and uh, Tigger was somewhere else. And I remember feeling, I need to get home. I need to get home. I just felt really weird. And uh, I managed to get home and went to bed. Now Tigger was back by that time. I said, can you call 111 or whatever it is, find out which painkiller is best for chest pains And of course, the moment you mentioned chest pains, one, 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 the whole NHS system kicks into action. And a a paramedic came around in the car and came up and he said, I think you've had a heart attack. So we need to get you to hospital. So I eventually had a triple bypass in Southampton. So yeah, I've, um, I've paid a lot of tax over the years, but I've had a lot back from the NHS.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, if bad things come in threes, I reckon you've had your three illnesses now as a couple, and this should just be plain sailing now forevermore. So, uh, <laughs> I wish you both very, very good health.
0: Thank you. Carol. But
1: your marriage is in good health, which I think counts for a hell of a lot and puts you in a tiny minority of people. What is um what is the harder role, having gone through both, the patient or the carer?
0: Um, interesting question. Uh, Tiggy said she'd rather be the patient. She found the caring role quite difficult. Um, <clears throat> I think, I, and in a way, I think it is harder to be the carer because you have to find the right balance of being supportive, uh, of dealing with a person who is going through a really tough time. Uh, you can't say, oh, everything's gonna be fine, you're gonna get better, you're gonna sail through this because that's not the reality. There's always a possibility somebody might die that you're looking after. So it's a very difficult role. Um, and so I think being being the carer is the more difficult one.
1: Well, we'll certainly put a link to Carers UK um, because I think people, you're right, people, they say, don't they, when people suffer from depression, it's the people who are around them that sometimes end up with the really, really long-term challenges. And um, I was chatting to somebody at a gig the other night, the night before I went in and had um, surgery, and he said that his... Dad suffered from uh, physical, you know, had had bouts with cancer and heart conditions and God knows what for 20 years, but his mum had a severe depression for six months and he said caring for his mum for six months with depression was harder than the 20 years caring for his dad. So we'll certainly put a link to that.
0: Namaste, motherfuckers!
1: What would you pick as your namaste motherfucking, life-changing moment?
0: Well, um, <clears throat> I think it probably, well, in terms of career, in terms of life changing, it would be the moment of the ultimatum from the garage manager and my transition from being a DJ, uh, being a car salesman and potential Formula One world champion, of course, uh, to becoming a DJ. That was quite a moment. And the other one really was um, the birth of my children. And they were both born at home. Even the first one, which normally is advised against. And we'd read an article, I read an article in the Daily Mirror about Frederick Roboyer, a French gynecologist who pioneered this whole different way of women giving birth, where it would be very much in the dark, and not complete darkness, but certainly darker than uh, bright lights in a, in a hospital ward or theatre. Um, also very quiet very gentle, and the umbilical cord shouldn't be cut until it starts pulsing. So in other words, you let the baby's lungs take over, getting oxygen, uh, and so then the cord stops pulsing and then, then you cut the cord. So I was in the room with my wife, being a witness to all of this, uh, and seeing this new birth arrive, the arrival of a, of a, of a baby into the world, was, that was a namaste moment. Most definitely. And again, with my daughter, Beth, when she was born.
1: What's your favourite joke?
0: Uh, I've struggled with that. I've actually been on the Internet looking for Bob Monkhouse jokes, which are all great. They are so good. Yeah, they are. He was fantastic. I don't remember jokes, Callie. I'm ever so sorry. I'm going to have to disappoint you on that one. I just people don't tell jokes anymore. Um, You've obviously been I'm, to
1: my shows, no jokes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why they talk about their lives, stand-ups, and they take the sort of mickey out of their, their lives and their own experiences. Every joke really is at the expense of somebody. So it's very hard in this politically correct world to, to tell jokes. And if somebody does tell me a joke, which is very rare these days, I've, com- I've thought an hour later I've completely forgotten it. So I'm Sorry. Don't be sorry.
1: I, I often end my um, my after dinner speeches when I reveal my uh, unexpected midlife life change. I I quote, I sent to quote a late, great British comedian, Bob Monkhouse. Everybody laughed when I said I wanted to be a comedian. Well, they're not laughing now.
0: Yes. So I've given you a
1: joke <laughs> <laughs> to fill for your lack of a joke. If you had one bit of life advice to give to anybody listening, what would it be?
0: Well, it comes from a TV show called Kung Fu that was years ago starring David Carradine when he was playing this monk in America. And he and another guy had been accused of of stealing horses, which is an offense that you could be hung for. So they're in this cart being taken into town to face trial the next day, possibly to be hanged, probably to be hanged. And David Carradine as Kung Fu is just in the back of the car playing his flute with not a care in the world. And the guy said to him, how on earth can you be so calm sitting there playing your flute? We're going to be hung tomorrow. And he just turned around and said, no amount of worrying ever changed tomorrow. So that's something that stuck with me. And the other thing that I like is, especially if you're stuck in some awful traffic jam, I am always in the right place at the right time. And that's a way of doing, you know, getting rid of the panic of, oh my God, I'm late, oh my God, what's happening here? Just decide, I'm always in the right place at the right time. And um, this was given to me when I did a course called Silver Mind Control. And the, the guy said, um, whenever you turn on the TV or radio, just stop and watch or listen to whatever's coming out, because maybe you're meant to hear that. <laughs> Namaste,
1: that was johnny walker so that's it for this week thank you so much as always for listening and do take a look at the show notes we always have the good stuff in there and we've got links to johnny's stuff and tiggy's brilliant book and also to carers uk which is the charity of which both johnny and tiggy are patrons so uh, if you care for anyone if you're loving if you're altruistic have a look at carers uk it may help you and it'll help you help other people anyway enough of all that uh, please do while you're feeling kind and loving and altruistic remember to rate review and recommend our show and we will be back in your feed next thursday as always when i'll be talking to comedian finn taylor
0: I take all the arguments in good faith. I think there must be elements of truth on both sides.
1: Namaste, Motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hanson and Karusha Dhani for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers.